This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Thank you for downloading the Talk Politics podcast. This week I'm joined for the entire show by Gloria DiPiero, former Labour MP for Ashfield. Talk Radio. Alexis Conran on Talk Radio with The Times and The Sunday Times. Know your times. Now, joining us on the line is a former friend of the show and former digital and transport advisor to Boris Johnson, Colby Arranger. Uh, Colby, how are you? Good morning, Alexis. I'm very well and still a friend of the show, I'd like to say. Always a friend I of know, the show. I know. As I said it, I thought, well, why is he a former <laughs> friend of the show? But it's it's early and I, I'm at I home. I know, I know. Uh, <laughs> and good morning to Gloria. I hear you have a new presenter with you. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, Colby, I'll kick off by asking you the same question we're asking the listeners. Uh, what do you make of the new messaging? Uh, stay alert control the virus, save lives. Do, do you think it, it, it works? It, it, it's a real challenge, Alexis. Let's be honest. We, we've gone through now what everyone will admit we've been that first phase, an intense phase where this virus landed, it spread, we had to control it. And it was quite clear, wasn't it? As you've just repeated, the stay-at-home message, protect the NHS, save lives. Very clear, very concise, what we all have to do. And let's be honest, um, every, nearly every single person it, it has really taken us to heart, and we've seen it by uh, our cities being empty, people staying separated, practicing social distancing. And yes, I think, you know, despite it's been a huge tragedy, I know so many people are affected. I know friends who've had it and also friends who've lost relatives. Um, this 31,000 deaths a tragedy. But we have protected the NHS. We haven't seen those scenes. Like, we saw those terrible scenes in Italy where their health service was overrun, and doctors having to make terrible decisions of who to treat and how to treat. We haven't had that. But now we go into this more challenging phase of how do we manage when we need to get the balance right in the country of protecting the country's health, but really protecting the economy and lives and jobs and livelihoods of people as well. So I think this next message is a hard, much, much harder one almost, because it has to balance so many different things. We've still got to be vigilant around this virus. We have to understand that it isn't fully under control yet, so we have to manage that. And we've still got to focus on protecting the vulnerable and others and help you know, save lives. So I, I, there's, it's not an easy answer. It's a, they're going to get criticised for a message because it's not as clear as the first one. But I would say it's because the challenge is much more complicated as we go into the second phase. 
But Colvier, Robert Jenrick didn't seem to rise to that challenge um, when he explained that stay alert means staying at home as much as possible. Well, it doesn't, does it? And if the government wants us to stay at home as much as possible, then getting rid of the stay at home message is confusing. It, it is, Gloria, I think it is. And, you know, a lot of what we've seen happen over the last couple of weeks has been, you know, you know almost in real time, them having to sense check, test out things, get some feedback. And I think this message is going to evolve where people are going to be moving around more. In fact, we've noticed, and, you know, God bless the British public, they've had a huge amount of patience in staying in, staying away from loved ones. But we know people are frustrated. We know people want to do things. You know, we, they want to see close loved ones. So there will be that message of, OK, slight loosening probably of going to see maybe people in either the so-called bubble or maybe immediate family who've also been self-isolating. So if they retained that stay at home, that would be probably too hard at the moment to maintain. But I think we'll have to help. And I think, look, let's also be fair. People have used their own good common sense when applying these rules. We've had a few COVIDiots, I think, as they're called. But, you know, on the whole, the mass population has used its collective common sense when applying these slogans. We haven't, you know been challenged by understanding them and I think as we get used to the next phase of messaging and as the ministers get to grip with the clarity of what they're saying, uh, hopefully that will help in this phase too. But we're told that 0.5 of those tests and I think 0.5 is the crucial one, the lockdown can be lifted only when it is certain a second peak of infections can be avoided. I mean that is a very very high bar that means we're going I'd to be in this situation for... This, that's months, isn't it? Months I and think, months before yeah, that. N you're right, Gloria. That's a really high bar. And, you know, I know as much about it as probably the next person on the street. It's who knows how do you get to that point where you conclude a second wave won't come. And some experts, you know, we must lean on some of the experts' knowledge here, believe that this kind of virus will now stay in our kind of uh, ecosystem of viruses for an ongoing basis where it will come and go seasonally. So how do you know that, you know, that second wave, we, we may need to anticipate one like that at some point anyway. Um, so I think, again, they're having to make um, these rules and these policies with not as much data as they probably want, with not as much clarity as they probably want, and with probably not as much consensus coming from the scientists and the medical uh, community as they'd want. So, you know, they, they make the rules to help us get some certainty. They may not always get them right, but I think, you know, we, we'll all have to sort of, and I say this because it does rely on us as individuals to use a bit of our common sense when interpreting what needs to happen. And hopefully, you know, as we have been doing, we'll continue to do so. Talk Radio. Alexis Conran on Talk Radio with The Times and The Sunday Times. Know your times. Let's welcome our next guest, who's uh, Richard Black, is Director of Energy and Climate Intelligence Unit, a former BBC Science and Environment uh, correspondent. correspondent. Uh, Richard, welcome to the show. Thanks, Alexis. Nice to be here. Um, uh, you wrote an article uh, this week in, uh, at the political.eu uh, website of uh, basically scientists coming into the harsh reality of politics. Um, scientists... 
either side of a government minister every day on TV, yeah. uh, of course, are being dragged into politics. Do, do the scientists themselves realise it or see it as that? I think some of them do. I mean, if, if you're on one of these government advisory uh, committees, then it sort of is part of, is part of your job, really, to be giving the advice. But I think what, what prompted uh, me to be thinking about this a little bit more was uh, what happened to Neil Ferguson, the, um, the, 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 the epidemiological modeller from Imperial College, um, who was really, he was uh, caught by the Daily Telegraph and the Sun having a visit from his uh, married lover, um, at the same time as he was, you know, one of the people that was um, advising people to stay home and so on. And so he had to resign from the government committee. But what really struck me was the way that the criticism of the lockdown was personalised on him. And it mm. just reminded me of some of the stuff that we were seeing sort of 15, 20 years ago with climate change scientists. But, yeah, Professor Ferguson, though, he did, you know, he, 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 he's done quite a lot of media during the crisis, so he is a public figure, or he became a public figure. Um, mm -hmm. And if you're a public figure, then, you know, you may be subject uh, to some headlines like this one that I'm about to read out. Professor Lockdown broke lockdown to get his trousers down. Yes, it, it, it's not of the sun's best, actually, is it? Having lockdown <laughs> twice in there, but never mind. <laughs> I quite liked it. I, quite, I, I just wanted to read it out. <laughs> Yeah. No, is it, it's but, but is it perfect? Is it fair enough? Well, I, I, in this particular case, I don't think it is fair enough, no. And the thing is that it wasn't him that did his model. It's a team of people that do the model. He goes on media because media asks him to. And as a respected scientist, a leader in his field, you know, calls journalists, talks him on the radio and television and stuff. Um, the figure that came up with, the, you know, sort of hundreds of thousands of deaths if nothing was done to stop social distancing... I mean, figures, you, you don't need a model to do that. You can just do the sums in your head. Uh, there was quite a lot circulating on, on Twitter before uh, his advice came rather dramatically into the public domain. You know, it's not difficult to do a sum. If 60% if of the UK population uh, needs to get infected to get herd immunity, and that's about 40 million people will become infected, uh, the mortality rate, probably about 1%, certainly at the time, you know, in March when this was being debated, mortality rate of 1%, thereabouts, that means 400,000 deaths. You don't, and, and actually about 500,000 people die in the UK normally, so it's a massive increase in the UK death rate. So it wasn't Professor, you know, he's not Professor Lockdown, or in some places he's being called, you know, the bonking boffin. This was a group effort. Um, and it really wasn't difficult to do. It was the personalising of the stuff on him that really, I thought, went beyond what uh, what what really you know is, is 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 good practice, to be honest. But it wasn't just Professor Ferguson. We also had Scotland's chief medical officer having to resign. Mm. Do you think? I mean, do you just do you think that they are just not you don't expect public scrutiny because they're not used to public scrutiny? It's a, it's a good question, isn't it? I mean, I. I think, as you were saying earlier, if, if, if they are in one of these roles where they're advising the government, and of course, in, in, in the case of um, uh, Dr. Calderwood, she was actually employed by the Scottish, the Scottish government to do that. So, um, yes, you should expect a deal of scrutiny. And in both the cases, there was a case in New Zealand, actually, as well, where the, the health minister mm. uh, went off to the coast and tweeted about it. Well, you know, uh, he, he was demoted as well. So, yes, the, the, you, you are in the public eye. You have to, your behaviour has to match what you, you know, what you preach. And, and that's what, that's why Professor Ferguson 
you know, resigned, and he, he said as much. So, you know, he he did it. He did err with his visit from his married lover, and there's no doubt there. But it was just, you know, this is not Professor Ferguson who's told the government, and the government has magically taken him or his advice as gospel, and it's all down on him. It's just not like that. But if you if you look at papers like the Telegraph, for example, you know, on days on some days they appear to be really, you know, advocating for an end to lockdown for whatever reason. And then they get the story about that sort of smears a scientist who's been, whose science is behind the lockdown. You know, it's not, it, you start to, you know, you start to see that there's not just kind of journal, you know, normal journalism involved here, I think. Also, is there a, uh, I don't want to say impending doom, uh, I think it's a bad choice of words there, but how worried are scientists who are standing either side of government uh, officials on those daily briefings that actually um, they may be left holding, uh, you know, the, the short straw here or, or at the end of the day, they may be blamed for those decisions. I mean, one of the uh, I can tell you if I ask a tricky question to a member of the cabinet or, or, or a minister, mm. I know exactly the answer I'm going to get, which is we followed the science, as if science yeah. is one solid thing that agrees with yeah. itself at all times. And we followed the science at the right time is a great get out clause for politicians. But does that mean that the scientists are going to left carrying the can? Yeah, I think it, I, th- th- there is definitely uh, a, a, a concern about that. Um, whether the particular scientists who stand either side of the government minister share, share that, I've, I've, I've no idea, but it's definitely a wider concern within science. Um, and, and what some of the media coverage, uh, particularly of the Ferguson affair, seems to forget is actually it's the politicians that make the decision. There's a phrase that's attributed to Churchill, it may have been others as well, you know, they want scientists on tap but not on top. And so that's right. clear, you know, politicians, and, and I'm sure Gloria will, will you know, for her first-hand uh, uh, um, experience of this as well. You know, you want the scientific advice, but at the end, it's the politicians that make the decision. So if you don't like the lockdown, criticise the cabinet. They're just, you know, they're taking account of all different types of advice. As you say, varying bits of science, varying um, perspectives on the science, but also economic evidence, um, evidence on how people are responding, what, what, what the British public is required to do. And in the end, it's the politicians who make the decisions. That's what they're paid for. Talk Radio. Alexis Conran on Talk Radio with The Times and The Sunday Times. Know your times. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist. 
specialist to find out if it's right for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Now we are joined on the line by Lucy Powell, Shadow Business and Consumer Affairs Minister uh, and Labour MP for Manchester Central. Lucy, welcome to the show. Good morning. Hi. Uh, good to have you on. Uh, I guess I'm going to ask you the same question we've been asking all our guests and our listeners. What do you make of the new messaging? Stay alert, control the virus, save lives. Well, look, I think it was always going to be tough, wasn't it, to to kind of have a, a follow-up message to, to the message that has been so powerfully used over the last weeks. Um, but I think, I think the, the trick now for the government is to to get a bit more confidence in what that message actually means and so that we all know as members of the public what that means for us so that businesses um, can have some confidence, public services and others can have confidence. So I think it was always good, this is always going to be the most sort of tricky point in this, in this whole kind of episode is how do you begin to start kind of loosening the lockdown without that just becoming... Um, you know, a, a free-for-all, really, and, and, you know, how how you do that in a managed way. So, I mean, it will, I suppose time, time will tell. I'm not sure that it's, it's been done in a totally clear way, and I think the way in which it's sort of been briefed out to newspapers for many days in advance, you know, with earlier messaging earlier in the week suggesting that there was going to be a much bigger loosening of the lockdown than I think we're now to see, I think has been regrettable and, and sort of is leading to a bit of confusion. So hopefully over the course of today and with the address this evening, you know, we, can, we can get a bit more clarity and, and restore that confidence in, in what's expected of us all. Uh, as as Labour, as the Labour Party and Keir Starmer uh, as your leader, you've been asking uh, Boris Johnson and the Conservative government to come up with a plan. Uh, you've been very supportive of the lockdown so far, but you want to see the plan, the roadmap of getting us out of lockdown. From what you have gleaned and gathered from the papers and from, I'm sure from the rumours uh, from colleagues, do you think that the statement tonight uh, at seven o'clock by Boris Johnson is going to satisfy uh, uh, the Labour Party as a clear plan of getting out of the lockdown? Well, I'm not sure. I mean, let's let, let's see. I think. I mean, obviously, we now are getting a bit more of that public conversation about what that plan might look like. Obviously, it's a very uncertain science. It's very uncertain times, so you can't be absolutely certain about that. But I'm not sure that. The government's really done the 
best it could have done in taking the public with it towards today because I think as we've seen over the weekend, I mean, I've not been out myself, so I haven't haven't seen it firsthand, but I mean, certainly the, the sort of reports that you know, a sense that the loosening was coming, so people were already starting to, to, to change behaviours. I think that's what we were hoping would be avoided um, by a bit more um, openness and transparency with, with the public earlier on about when and how and under what uh, conditions, uh, you know, some of this easing happen. Um, so I think, I think it is important that over the next 24 hours now, there's the address to the nation this evening, there's a statement in Parliament tomorrow... Um, but also, I think, what, from my point of view, what we need to see sitting alongside that are, is, a, is a recommitment from the government to, to many of the measures um, that have enabled people to stay at home or stay alert, as, as is now the message. So the, the, the schemes that are supporting businesses, that are support, supporting workers, uh, the support that's going to councils and to the NHS and so on, yeah, that all needs to be redoubled now in order to, to enable people to um, carry on uh, behaving in, in a way uh, that will control the virus. Uh, we, Lucy, we read that Rishi Sunak uh, will make a statement on Tuesday and one of the things that he could say um, is that the furlough scheme could be phased out gradually to allow some workers to return part-time initially, some, some furloughed workers. Is that a good thing? Well, I think getting rid of a sort of a, a, a stark cliff edge would, would definitely be a good thing because we, I'm hearing every day from businesses who want that greater flexibility for maybe short-time working or part-time working to ease back in because... Although some some places, like some factories, for example, may be able to um, adhere to social distancing in, in, in their workplaces, of course, there's very little demand still in the, in the economy. So they might want to be working on full capacity. For, for other businesses, they, they won't be able to operate on full capacity because they won't be able to adhere to that social distancing. So this sort of flexibility is important. But I think what I... What I want to see reiterated by the government on, on Tuesday as well is, is a commitment to, to the scheme continuing because there will be many sectors, hospitality, for example, the travel industry, aviation and so on, many sectors where there won't be any return, any, any reopening for, for, for another um, many months, potentially, certainly many weeks. And so the scheme needs to be there in full for those businesses that, that need it. And I think we do need to see a more flexible approach to allow, um, to, to allow businesses to, to, to build up gradually. And you talk about the scheme being uh, needed for those businesses that need it. The Sun is reporting today uh, that Britain's richest family, the Hindujas, are using the furlough scheme for some employees at a North Yorkshire bus manufacturing firm. Should they be using the scheme, Britain's richest family? No, I mean, I was very concerned to, to, to read this because I think, unfortunately, these kinds of um, stories, which are on the, on the whole are, are, you know, the minority of those sort of you, potentially using the scheme, I think it will... Um, I worry that that would dramatically undermine public support in the furlough scheme, which is absolutely essential to maintaining and incubating businesses through this phase so that then they can reopen and restart the economy 
um, when when they're able to do so. So we've seen some other cases, haven't we, of, of high-profile individuals and companies um, saying they were going to use a furlough scheme and then public pressure uh, was, was brought... Spice, back, for back, instance, back, yes. Back, Victor Beckham and so on. Um, mm. and, I, and I hope that the same applies in this case and that they, they reconsider because it's not what the scheme was really designed to be. It's there as a safety net and for businesses that absolutely need to use it. And, and it's, it's really important that we maintain public support for this scheme for as long as it is needed um, because only then will we be able to, um, to, to, to come out of the recession more quickly because we need businesses there for when the recovery comes. We don't want businesses to go bust. Talk Radio. Alexis Conran on Talk Radio with The Times and The Sunday Times. Know your times. We are also joined by Professor Stephen Fielding, Professor of Political History at Nottingham University. Professor, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Uh, Professor... I want to talk to you about one of your articles that uh, you wrote in The Times, specifically about uh, Winston Churchill. Now, a lot of uh, uh, of uh, Winston Churchill uh, has been coming up again and again recently, not uh, simply due to the fact that our Prime Minister Boris Johnson seems to have, well, seems to want to model himself on uh, Winston Churchill, but I'm, I'm sure we're going to get into that in a second. But he certainly wrote a book yeah. about Winston Churchill, a, a biography of Winston Churchill. And um, certainly the the spirit of the nation, we're in lockdown, a lot of comparisons have been drawn up. Uh, the, 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 the war rhetoric of these addresses to the nations, one that we're going to see tonight at seven o'clock, very similar to sort of wartime, getting the public effort behind uh, defeating this sort of invisible enemy. In, mm. in your view, are these assertions of this Churchillian manner appropriate right now? Um, I don't know if they're appropriate. I just don't think they're accurate. Uh, right. I mean, Winston Churchill beca- became, became prime minister um, 80 years ago today. And and he did so because he was associated associated with with uh, basically if we're if we're going to defeat Germany, we have to mobilize all our resources. We have to do absolutely everything that we can do to defeat Germany. And his predecessor, Neville Chamberlain, simply wasn't doing that. And the reason why he was in the frame to become prime minister is because uh, the Chamberlain government had pursued what was called a phony war. It was doing as little as it possibly could in the fight against Germany. And the consequence of that was that Germany, actually, on the very day that Churchill became prime minister, launched this massive offensive um, in the West, which led to the sort of evacuation at Dunkirk. So at that point, Churchill basically says, we really have no alternative. You know, we have to do things I don't want to do. We have to raise income tax. We have to effectively nationalise railways. We have to mobilise all the nation's resources as best we can in order to defeat Germany. And that might mean that the Britain that emerges out of this this conflict would be very different to the one that Churchill, for example, would have wanted. It, it, it was a very risky strategy, but basically said we have no alternative. So there is, in my mind, at least, some some contrast with the present government and its kind of COVID strategy, which many people have criticised for too little, too late, the lockdowns being lifted when... Maybe it shouldn't. And so there's, I think there's a very different kind of Churchill that, in reality to the one that Boris Johnson seems to think he is. 
Well, let, let, let's focus on that for a second before I, I, I know Gloria has got many questions as well, but Boris Johnson likes to think of himself as this Ch Churchillian figure. Yeah. Is he anywhere near? Has he misunderstood what Churchill himself <clears throat> was, was actually like? Well, I think he's taken the superficialities of Churchill. Um, I mean, you know, Churchill was a very kind of odd figure for a politician. He was quite eccentric. You know, he wore, you know, he wore, he wore odd, odd clothes. Um, he was a showman. I mean, he was an entertainer. He, he, he did have a way with words. Um, and there are things that you might say that Johnson, the echoes of Johnson that is sort of deliberately emulated in that respect. But in terms of the Churchill of 1940, um, he's, I think he's a long way from that um and he's in many ways you could argue he's actually closer to neville chamberlain um churchill's kind of an effective predecessor because he wants to do as little as possible to defeat the covid virus and some some say well that's that's got some unfortunate consequences um for, for britain he's not mobilizing the resources of the nation in the way that that winston churchill did in 1940 and 80 years on he still um has the power to you know there are still big blockbuster movies made about churchill <clears throat> why why are we so um fascinated by him why can he reach into popular culture in the way that he does well i think that he does because of that particular moment i mean i mean many people have said well, you know the british go on far too much about the second world war and uh, you know they should really let it go but but actually in May 1940, May, June 1940, when the troops were being evacuated from Dunkirk and Church was prime minister, there was a debate in the cabinet um, between those who said, look, we've got to make peace with Germany. We're defeated. You know, our best, our best um, kind of result is to, you know, go to Herr Hitler and say we, we, we would like some kind of a deal. And those on the other side who, you know, Churchill was the lead, one of the leading figures, but Attlee and other Labour members of this coalition government were certainly backing him to the hilt, um, was that, no, we can't trust the Germans. We can't trust the Nazis. Look at what Hitler has done in the past. Our only hope of survival as a nation is to continue fighting, whatever, to, to quote Churchill, whatever the cost may be. And that was a very risky kind of thing to say at that point but it was one it was a decision that you could say you know history the hinge of history kind of turned on that because if britain had gone and sued for peace that would be you know that would have guaranteed nazism um to dominate europe for generations so in a way hit i mean churchill embodies that i mean it's difficult to say, you know there are all these things about churchill um but actually churchill as he said himself he was um, the lion's voice, that he articulated what was within the British people, the defiance that was in the British people. And so when we talk about Churchill, we should also make sure we talk about what the British people did. And, you know, Clement Attlee, who hardly gets mentioned in any of these, you know, films, like The Darkest mm. Hour, hardly, ha hardly has a word to say. Mm. They play Labour played a very important role in all of this. But the focus is on Churchill because, of course, personalities tend to dominate history. And it reminds us, for those reasons that you've um, outlined, of a time of national pride, of strong leadership, of leadership in the world. Why did they kick him out at the next general election? <laughs> well, um, Churchill was a very strange figure um, within the Conservative Party. When he became uh, prime minister, 
um, like I say, 80 years ago today. He didn't become leader of the Conservative Party. The Conservative Party was still led by Neville Chamberlain. Most people in the Conservative Party hated Winston Churchill because he'd argued against appeasement. So, um, so in many ways, it was the Labour benches that welcomed Churchill more than the Conservative benches. And, and as a war leader, you could argue, you know, he was exemplary. You know, at that, at that particular moment in the summer of 1940, we are not going to surrender. We are going to fight, whatever the cost may be, on the beaches and in the streets and all of that. And he articulated what people wanted, actually, at the time. But as, as the war, the end of the war became, got closer and closer, people began to ask, well, actually, the Britain that entered the, the, world, the Second World War, defined by unemployment, poverty, government, you know, allowing society to become increasingly unfair, we don't want to go back to that. And so that's why they voted for Labour, because it promised a new Jerusalem, whereas Churchill was a great war leader. But because he'd become leader of the Conservative Party by that point, he was kind of tainted with the pre-war kind of period that people thought, we've fought this war. We want something, you know, to come out of it that's positive. And so they voted Labour and for things like the NHS and, you know, greater equality, welfare state. And, and things and values actually did emerge from the war itself. You say in your article, and this is something that, and I must hold my hand up, my, my knowledge, uh, uh, historical knowledge of, of uh, Winston Churchill is not that great. But I was surprised <coughs> to uh, read in your article that uh, by VE Day and after Germany mm. had uh, surrendered, um, within weeks, uh, he was even booed at Winston <coughs> Churchill's at, at open air rallies. Why had people turned so much? Well, Churchill was always a very controversial figure. Um, I mean, people on the left today say, you know, that well, they, they kind of don't like the idea that we celebrate Churchill because they say he was a racist, which actually he was. Um, but then again, lots of people were at that time. But also when he was you know, he was actually in the liberal cabinet before the First World War. He sent in troops to break up strikes in the, in the in South Wales, right? So he was not a popular figure within the working class necessarily. And in the in 1926 general strike, he was he was very vituperative and he you know to crush this you know, this threat to democracy as he saw it. He was he was a very hard line right wing figure in many respects. So so his wartime reputation kind of covered over some of that, and but but people you know didn't trust him. Many people didn't trust him to be a good peacetime leader so there was so he's a very ambiguous figure very controversial figure not only in the Tory party but in Britain as a whole and you could see this 1940 moment when he led Britain you know it defiantly against what most people thought was going to be a victorious Nazi Germany um, that was a kind of almost an aberration um, really so far as his his record was concerned so it wasn't really a great surprise because also in the run-up to that general election instead of saying we need to build on what we did during the war, like we nationalised railways, created a, in effect a national health service, we need to go back to how things were before the war. And that is not what people wanted. And you write a lot about Labour history, about working class history, about the Labour Party. Are <coughs> there any lessons today's Labour Party can learn <coughs> about how Attlee dealt with that uh, situation? Well, well, yes. I mean, uh, at the start of the war in September 1939, because Labour, Labour leaders were so critical of the completely ineffective, appeasing leadership of Neville Chamberlain, when he, he offered them to join 
uh, coalition. But they thought, no, we're not going to fall for that because basically we're going to be implicated in all kinds of decisions that we've got no control over. And by the way, we don't trust you, Neville Chamberlain. You've led us into this, this, this thing. So during this the period of the phony war, it's like the autumn and the, and the winter and the spring of 39-40, the, the role of the Labour Party was to be a loyal opposition. They wanted to fight the war, but to expose all the, the lapses and the mistakes of the government. So it was a loyal opposition, but some kind of a, a gadfly. And in many ways, Keir Starmer was doing exactly the same thing. You know, from outside of government, he's supporting the government in the good things it's doing, but also putting pressure on government uh, to do things which it, is, it isn't doing and arguably should be doing. So that's, that's, that's about the only thing an opposition can do. It's a difficult thing to be in, in a moment of crisis, but um, that's about it, really. Um, so I think Keir Starmer is doing essentially what Attlee did until Attlee entered the government in, when, when mm. things went really badly wrong. And just another question about the Labour Party and how it is viewed historically. If you were to, if I was to go out on the high, God, chance would be a fine thing. If I was to go out on the high street now and sort don't, of uh, do don't. some box, <laughs> no, do some box pops, do some box pops with some non-existent yeah. people on the high street, and I would say, yeah. what do you think about, you know, what's what's your view about the Labour Party? They would say. Well, one of the things they would say is it's pacifist, it's, it's very, uh, you know, yeah. against war, it's very peace, peacenik yeah. uh, in nature. Yeah. But is that a relatively new part of Labour's mm. history? Um, well, there have always been, you know, internationalists, pacifists, um, you know, people like that um, who had big problems with, with what the government, the state was doing and, you know, republic were Republicans and things like that. But it's always been a relatively minority um, stream, certainly amongst Labour voters, maybe amongst Labour members a bit more. Um, and certainly when people were comparing Jeremy Corbyn, with, and, and they did, with, with Clement Attlee, I thought that was one of the most bizarre kinds of comparisons because, because in many ways, um, I mean, Corbyn represented a tradition in the party, which was the very antithesis of the one that, that Attlee um, represented. I mean, he was a patriot. He wasn't a nationalist. He wasn't an imperialist, but he was a patriot. Um, and he kind of wanted to make the institutions of the country work. He didn't want to keep picking away at them, but to turn them into a progressive direction. And of course, when Attlee did become prime minister, um, he was part of that government that actually helped create NATO, which Jeremy Corbyn wanted to um, kind of didn't really like doesn't doesn't really like NATO very much. So, so yeah, there are, there are lots of traditions in the Labour Party. But if you if you said oh Labour stands for pacifism, you've really got it wrong. Um, there's a there's a bigger tradition, a more a, a longer tradition, a more central tradition, uh, which Attlee um, kind of represents. Thank you for downloading this podcast. A reminder: you can listen to Talk Politics live every Sunday between ten and one p.m. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.